Hey there, friends, and welcome back to episode three of the Presence Over Pain podcast. I'm author Doug Rumbled, and as we look ahead to episode three, I want to just get our bearings with Scripture. Galatians 6 verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It is so important as we encounter suffering in any form that we are ready and willing to share in one another's sufferings. It makes all the difference, and that's what we're going to be talking about in episode three. Also, as a quick note, I would love for you to get your hands on my book for a lot of different reasons, the strongest of which would be for your heart to be encouraged in your trial. You can find it at Amazon, Walmart, and Barnes & Noble. Looking forward to episode three. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Presence Over Pain podcast. I'm Brady Zimmer, and I'm here with Doug Rumbled, the author of Presence Over Pain. Doug, how are we doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Brady? I'm doing all right as well. Thank you for asking. Doug, last week we discussed Christ, the foundation for everything, and also the foundation for how you were going to get through a tough time in your life when your daughter was diagnosed with cancer. And today we're talking about community. So can you share with us a few examples of people in your community who were there for you, who cried with you during first your brother's passing, and then also uh, Jada's cancer journey? Yeah, for sure. I think some of the things that come to mind, probably to begin with, again, is uh, I I think grief is kind of like a kaleidoscope. Um, There's various angles uh, and, and perspectives. So I think if you were to ask, like, my mom or my oldest brother or my next sister or my next brother, I could just keep listing them. I think what you would find is a varied um, set of answers of how people have responded or how people responded rather in those moments of pain. And I, and I think that's in keeping with how God designed the body of Christ. You know, each one is different and functions differently. Um, so I think to that end, there's great stories. For me, there's, there's probably three or four, and I'll just try to be real brief with them. Number one, uh, I just remember coming back from being at home and just breaking down every basketball practice. I would, I would get to practice and I'd get about halfway through practice and I just couldn't do it. And, and my coach, uh, kind of unbeknownst to me behind the scenes had a conversation with my brother, uh, Ed and Ed would, um, sacrifice his time like a good brother and he would, he would literally sit outside my practice and my coach, I'd hit the point of like a meltdown or whatever it was. And my coach would just kind of dismiss me and I would go out um, or a practice would get over and I would go out and my brother would be waiting there for me. So it was a tremendous thing just to have somebody to, to be comforted by. Uh, and my sister served the same purpose. Uh, she was up there at school with me too. Um, Jennifer, she was often uh, just available for late night chats or for you know, like a, a run to the village squire and grab some pizza and chat. Um, also, my my sweet mate who shared um, uh, shared a room with me. His name was Kent. Um, Kent was somebody who, if I were to characterize him, never felt like he was in a rush, and never had to fix me. He was the one who uh, would just kind of find me in my room, and just sit on the chair next to me. And just say, hey, 
I remember when I came down and I visited last year and he would list a couple of different things uh, about Ben. And then he would just say, what are some of your favorite memories? And he'd just spend time uh, listening, not offering um, anything other than uh, his friendship. And then probably one of the most pivotal was my professor, um, Dr. Steve Jirali. He was somebody who kind of watched. He he mentored me through college. He actually uh, officiated my wedding. And he was somebody who, after a couple of weeks uh, being at school, I was a little bit um, withdrawn. And I remember this, and this, I don't know if this would fly today. I'm sure it breaks all sorts of rules, but I loved it. Uh, I remember coming back into my room on a Friday and, and Dr. Steve was in my room. He's just sitting in my room and I'm like, oh, I'm like, hey, hey there, <laughs> how are you? And he just goes, hey, I want you to pack a bag. You're going to come live with Jan and I for a week or so. And I'm like, oh, well, all right. And I did. I packed my bag and I stayed off campus at his house for a bit. And it was amazing. I mean, every night was come home from practice and he would just kind of meet us uh, or meet me rather there. And it was just kind of like grief counseling 101 um, almost every evening with him and his wife on the couch. Just a lot of listening, a lot of tears and um, and then just encouragement and prayer. And it was pretty huge with Jada. If you kind of move forward into a little bit more of a present version of suffering, I think there's probably too many to list, uh, but but a couple that come to mind would be my parents. Um, this story is just really kind of a, a kind of a tender one that I don't know if I've told uh, too many people. I, I remember being at home the morning that Jessica took her to um, to have blood work and her ultrasound. Actually, it was just her ultrasound first, and so. Um, Jessica began to call me after about an hour because it went from an ultrasound to a CT to an MRI to and you know all these different scans that were not planned and and Jessica seemed a little terrified and I'm on the phone and my dad had called me while I was on with Jessica and I said well honey I gotta I gotta take this call from dad I'll call you right back and and I was just I was literally in my home all by myself and I just, I remember dad saying, you know, what's happening? You know, what's going on? I said, well, Jessica's at uh, Peoria Imaging, I think it was. And she, and she was having um, to sit there and wait. And I said, she already had uh, blood work, or sorry, she already had her ultrasound. And then she was moving toward an MRI or whatever. And my dad's voice, he just, he just goes, oh man. That's like all he said. And then he started crying. But it was, you, he didn't say anything. He's just he was just quiet. And I remember he knows this pain. He, he knows when the physician says cancer, he knows what it's like to be like, I've got I, all control. I thought I had is not lost. It was a really tender moment, but that ended up just being real powerful. I think my siblings, when everything happened with Jada were awesome. My brother, Ed, uh, lived in Slovakia at the time, and, and him and his daughter, who's Jada's age, made their way back and uh, visited, uh, surprising Jada. That was pretty awesome. My sister, Jen, at the time, uh, lived in Colorado, and it was a little bit of a baby-making factory. So she came out with uh, her daughter, who was Jada's age, and surprised Jada as well, which is pretty huge. I also remember just our church family being amazing. Uh, the elders, I've already mentioned just in a previous episode, how they were so supportive and like ministry can wait, take care of your family. 
without any sort of expectation. And just really tender memories of just different church members. Like I remember uh, Mo Thompson was just awesome. You could kind of set a clock by when she would visit and how long she would visit, but she would bring a book and she would sit Jada on her lap and she would just say, hey, Dad, why don't you go take a walk? Why don't you just go get a little bit of a break and a breather? And she'd just sit there and love on Jada, read her a book, and Jada would kind of fall asleep in her arms. And that was about it. And then she would leave. It was just really sweet. I was a youth pastor at the time, so my students were incredible. Everything from laundry to house cleaning to helping to run errands and babysitting, they were pretty great. And probably one of the more tender uh, stories that I think of are some of my college friends, um, and Kent was one of them, and, and a roommate named Dave. They, the, I believe it was the night of the surgery, they, they drove all the way from Milwaukee and Chicago. So Kent came from Milwaukee through Chicago, picked up Dave after they both, they both were teachers, would get off school and drove all the way down to Peoria and, and saw me in the waiting room and, and hung with me for about an hour, maybe, not long just sat and cried. No words, hardly anything. And then they turned right back around and went back to work the next day. And I was just amazed at the sacrifice that that must have been. Yeah. It seems that suffering and hardship can cause isolation Mm -hmm. and it can make us feel uh, a sense of, of loneliness, right? Being alone. And so why, why do you think that community is essential when it comes to life in general, but specifically when it comes to suffering, why is community essential? I, I think probably one of the reasons it's essential is, and we've talked about this before, but sin itself has this like inward curve and um, anything connected to sin, I think, can have that same isolating inward turn. So there's the, there's the personal inward turn of like, oh no, my suffering is so great and people don't know what to do with me. And so then I have to be able to, uh, to manage that and that can lead to isolation. But really, if we're talking community-wise, isolation happens because people don't know what to do with you. People are like, oh, so when I said, how are you? And your answer is horrible. <laughs> you don't know what to do with that. I mean, think about on a typical day when you bump into somebody and, hey, how you doing? I mean, even the beginning of this podcast, how are you? I'm all right. Like, we, number one, we wouldn't know what to do if someone said, actually, I feel like I'm in the pit of hell this morning. Oh, well, uh, be warmed and filled. I've got an appointment I got to get to. Like most of us don't know what to do. We get uncomfortable. Um, but the reason community and suffering is essential is simply because that inward curve, I think, of leads to isolation and then desolation. Like you just, everything feels flat. Uh, You feel like you're in a barren wasteland, a desert. Uh, We need others with whom we can process our joys and sorrows. It reminds me of uh, a 17th century essayist, Francis Bacon. I don't really read 17th century essays often, but (laughs) I came across this quote, and it, uh, it has stuck with me for years. He says this, Those who lack a friend in which to unburden their heart become cannibals of their own hearts. Isn't that powerful? And to be able to share openly with one's friend, I love this, it redoubles joys and cuts grief in half. So there's a sense where community as a place of, you know, I can let somebody in to both my joys and my sorrows is really what's most needed. Um, 
we were never designed to go it alone. And I think this quote just really points to that. If, if I can't unburden myself, then all the burdens sit on me. And if all the burdens sit on me, then um, I'm going to have to be the one who learns how to, to parse through them. And we all know how helpful echo chambers are <laughs> when you're the only voice that you're hearing. Um, it just doesn't help. But I love the it redoubles joys and cuts grief in half. Think of a celebratory thing that you've experienced. And the, the first thing in your mind is usually not, how can I keep this to myself and hoard all the joy? The first thing that comes to your mind is, who can I share this with? And somehow, we don't think the same of grief or hardship, do we? We don't often think, who can I share this with? But if you look all throughout the scriptures, you see this idea of like, who can I invite in? Not like a willy-nilly, lack of discernment, whatever, but more of a, I, who can I invite in? Because this load is far too great. Yeah, I think the the flip side to that, if I can get in the mind of somebody listening or even my own mind at times, is, uh, yeah, but community or at least the community I have, have been in hasn't always been helpful. And so you write in chapter five that Jesus inviting three of his disciples into his suffering, uh, the fact that he did that, they exactly weren't much help. Right. They oh, fell asleep sure. um, in the garden. And so if that's true and we see it not always being maybe ideal or what we were hoping for, what would you say to someone who has been hurt by the church or who has had a bad experience in community who has gotten to the point where they say, I don't really want and I don't even think I need others? Well, I, th I think aside from saying you're wrong, um, <laughs> I, would, I would actually just, to rewind that a little bit, I, I have an answer, but I, I want to hear, hear from you because I, I think one of the first things that is really common these days in terms of, and we've, we've talked off air about this, but uh, the idea of deconstruction. And, and deconstruction just being this, like, I'm going to piece apart every little bit of my faith and then kind of remake something that works for me. Uh, not necessarily a bad thing. Deconstructing is a challenge and argument for integrity. But overall, when I think about this idea of, okay, the church hurt me, and now I'm done. And, and I'll get to a little bit in a, in a minute, but I want to hear from you, like, what have you done? Surely in your you know, 30-ish years, you can point to pain that you've experienced from other people, like either unintentionally or intentionally. And then how did you, how did you process that? Yeah. Uh, so knowing that you were going to turn this um, back on me and ask me, I just made three quick notes. So the first one, when I think of church hurt, uh, unfortunately, I think of all the pastor scandals mm -hmm. that we have seen in the news over the past few years. People in positions of leadership just outright abusing that power and abusing their leadership. Unfortunately, the, the way that we, and people may disagree with this, but the way that we do church, if you can put that in quotes, attracts leaders who love power, who love control, who love to be seen every single week on a stage, and a lot of churches run their 501c3s like a business, which makes their pastor a CEO. Uh, 
And I don't have anything against businesses and CEOs, um, but for the church, I think that we have to rethink this. And if I can speak to our context here, that's why I love uh, our model here at Northfield. It's a shared leadership team. With that being said, though, that doesn't mean that we're immune to that, right? And that church hurt isn't still happening here, but I, I do think it helps. And so we have to see the church as the church, as the body of Christ, where no one gets special privileges and no one is more important than the mission. Um, and I think this leads to an open and honest and vulnerable community. So if you're listening to this and you're in a position of leadership at a church, be aware of your actions, be aware of your words, be aware of how you carry yourself, be aware how you lead so we don't continue this cycle of people being hurt by others in positions of power. And so maybe more specifically to your question, leadership aside, hurt can happen just with within the church from anyone, right? Someone says that really unhelpful, maybe ignorant comment during a small group time, uh, whether it was intentional or not, or whatever it may be. I think of Philippians chapter two, when Paul encourages the church at Philippi to count the interest of others more important than your own interests. And I think it's so simple, but it's so profound. And don't, don't you think, just to jump on yeah. that a little bit, don't you think that the count your own interests, I think one of the poor ways that that's been taught is, oh, never have any regard for your own, Yeah, which I actually disagree with. I mean, the whole concept is placement. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're still going to have your own interests, for sure. right? And that's, that's normal, and that's, that's good, that's healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, to count others' interests above yours is is the key. And so, yeah, I think that that has to be our reality. We're not going to be perfect, but uh, if we live with this mindset, I think it'll it'll help a lot. Okay. The, the second thing I would say, for those of you who have been hurt by the church, I think we need to pause and evaluate. Not dismissing the hurt or tossing it aside, but this is where a conversation and forgiveness needs to be extended. Uh we, we live in a very, very sensitive time. We literally live in a time and a place that is characterized by cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And so too many people, I think, just leave and give up too soon. And that's sad. And it should be worked out. Um, however, with that being said, I think there is a time and a place to leave. And if it comes to that point, then it needs to happen. But I would argue that it doesn't come to that point as often as people think it oh, should. For, for sure. I think in my years in ministry, I've seen... And experience times where, like, yeah, that probably should have been worked out. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would agree. And then the last thing I would say is, we we need each other, hmm. right? We are relational human beings. We are relational creatures. And as a good friend of mine often says, you can't one another yourself. There are so many one another commands in Scripture, and so this requires us to be in community. And so when I hear from people that that say, I'm, I'm just a Christian, but I don't need the church. Uh, first, that saddens me mm-hmm. because uh, they have most likely had some sort of bad experience. But it also confuses me mm-hmm. because I don't really know if that's possible, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I get it. So I guess to, to sum up, I think we need to seriously evaluate the model of, quote unquote, doing church mm-hmm. and what, what that really looks like all throughout the week, but also even on Sunday morning which if you look throughout church history is a relatively new way to mm-hmm. to run a church. 
Um, I think if you've been hurt by the church, don't give up too soon. Seek counsel in community Mm -hmm. and see if it's really time to look elsewhere. And then lastly, simply put, we we need other humans. We need other Christians. We can't live this life alone. I think we should have you talk more often. I think think I I ask because I know that that I have experienced hurt. Uh, and and this is not one of those uh, pastoral expose podcasts where we we it's not no I you know maybe <laughs> maybe next episode but I think overall I have endured great hurt by the people I pastor I really have and for those of you from our church who are listening I would just say this and I've inflicted great hurt right this is uh, I'm not innocent at all. I think the road toward maturity in Christ, my maturity particularly, is paved in large part with my sin and failure covered by the blood of Jesus. And so the, to the one who's listening, I think I would say, if you want to throw away, similar to what you're saying, if you want to throw your faith and, and exit the church based on an interpersonal interaction that you had um, that was poorly handled, um, I would just say, wait. Take, take stock of what sort of Christ is being constructed by your experiences, by your emotions. I think often when hurt or emotion is, is kind of the brick and mortar of our faith, we find that the construction is less than good. Uh, and to your point, and I think it's kind of interesting that your, your input is um, very much similar to mine. I would just say Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 speak to this idea. They speak to the idea that whether you hurt someone or someone has hurt you, it's always your move, uh, meaning it's, it's always your move to move toward people in forgiveness and reconciliation. So think about Jesus. His friends failed him in the garden, right? He could have like dropped his head and been all mopey and golly, I spent three years with you guys doing miracles, raising the dead, and you're over here catching a tight 20 while I'm trying to give my heart to the Lord in the hardest moment of my life. But instead, he, he actually continues to invite them in. Like he, a few days later, is there to console their aching hearts while they're hiding in a room. He's there uh, on the seashore restoring Peter three times for his three careless rejections of Christ and his denials. We simply must move toward those who have hurt us with gospel confidence. We just have to. I think there's an understanding it's important. And I think uh, C.S. Lewis said it well in uh, his book, The Four Loves. He says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And I think that's such a powerful picture of our need for other people, particularly when it comes to um, people not saying the right things in suffering or people um, not doing the right things in suffering. Give a little attitude. Yeah, that's good. I think maybe that'll kind of lead us into our, our last question. Do you, do you have advice for other pastors or church leaders thinking specifically of life outside of Sunday morning? 
what does a healthy church community look like, um, especially during times of suffering? What, what advice would you give people first in positions of leadership, but also maybe just the church at large? Okay, so it's a great question uh, because I think it gets to what you said about our model for doing church and special treatment and, and all the like. Um, I have long felt that the way Northfield has handled things is pretty great because what it does is and it, it doesn't elevate a person. So think of it this way. Jada gets sick. The elders come to me and say, we're going to give you a five-month paid sabbatical. Now that's not, you know, probably not common knowledge. Like they didn't make a huge announcement to the church. Like, Hey, this is what we're doing for Doug, but they did it. And what happened in the meantime was the youth ministry grew. That probably says something about my <laughs> more about the volunteers than it does about the leadership. Uh, but I think it's, it's a powerful picture of, uh, no, he, he, we love him. He's nothing special, right? Jesus is special. Let's, let's keep that front and center. But I think outside of Sunday, if you're a leader, here's what I'd say to you. Submit yourself to community. Uh, I think one of the strangest and hardest things to do in my, in my position, in my role, is to say, I'm going to be in a life group and I'm going to air my dirty laundry. I'm, I'm, there are guys in my life group, and they can you know, if they listen to this, which they probably will, these guys know that when I'm home alone and my wife is gone and my kids are gone, they're going to get a text or a phone call that says, hey, would you check in with me tomorrow to see how my purity was? Did I look at anything I shouldn't? Was my integrity high? And I want you to ask me those questions. So there are guys in our church who probably know things that obviously I'm not making available to the wider church, but to a trusted few who understand that there is forgiving grace and there's empowering grace. And their job in community is to help administer both. And I think that's a critical aspect that we often miss uh, with community. So uh, pastor, submit yourself to the community of your church. Number one, the humility that it shows will actually bring about a, uh, a depth of authenticity that the watching world is like, oh wait, that's actually awesome. You know, uh, The other thing that I would say, number two, is don't always be the one who leads. You know, if you step into a room and everybody kind of turns to you and waits and, and then you always speak or you always offer something, you may be missing some pretty tremendous opportunities for growth and sharpening for those in your in your flock. In terms of like healthy church wide community, you asked, what does it look like? Real simply, it's a lot of people who get it wrong, make it right and try again. It's it's people who are committed to that process. Uh, most essentially, most basically, I would say they are present, particularly in suffering, because that was the question, like how, how does this look in suffering? I think they are, they are present without needing to fill the space with trivialities. Like, how do I want to say this? God won't give you more than you can handle. That's a load of crud, right? Actually, I'm drowning most days if I, if I look at my own strength. So they're not there doing that. The other thing that they're not doing Hopefully this doesn't come come across sharp. Because I, th I think my wife would agree with me on this one as we've talked through these things. Because as I aged up in marriage and the Lord matured me, one of the things that she just gently would point out like, hey, I, I don't like 
your comparison comforts. What do you mean? You finish a statement of going through something hard or something that you're experiencing that's difficult, and then you'll say something like this. Well, at least I'm not a starving kid in Africa. Oh, or at least I still have two parents at home. Or, And then you, you begin to add these little things that basically try to frame your suffering as not as bad as someone else. And it's like a self-canceling statement. It's uh, the way that I began to see this play out that I thought, okay, this, this is important is when I was a youth pastor and I would have a, a student come to me and they'd be broken and falling apart. And, and I, a, after a few questions, we begin to learn, oh, it's because they broke up with their girlfriend after homecoming. And then, I, you know, a little bit of me would kind of chuckle and be like, dude, you're going to get over this. Trust me. Like in a few years, you probably won't even remember her name. But in reality, what I began to see was Presence matters. And, and I don't mean like the, the presence of God in, in the sense that we're talking about with the book, but I mean like the present situation matters. Like this is the biggest deal to him right now. And so my job in shepherding and loving and relating and being a healthy church member is to be in that biggest moment with them without trying to compare it to something else, without trying to say, well, you know, just think about when God gives you a wife later. God may not. So I'm, I'm not going to provide a comfort that God doesn't even give. And, and what I'd rather do is, is point that person toward Christ and his sufferings, not comparing his sufferings to what somebody else is going through so that way he can you know, somehow have a better coping mechanism. And then I, I guess I would just say more than anything, what the world appreciates is an authentic Jesus-centered faith. More often than not, the people that I have conversations with who are not followers of Jesus and then uh, come to Christ, they came not because of a compelling or convicting theological argument, usually. Now, that does happen, but usually they don't. They come because of a person. They come because someone was bringing a meal when they were going through a hard time. They come because someone watched their kids when they lost their job and they just couldn't hold their their house together. They came to Christ because the people of God chased after them and loved them in a way that was powerful and tangible and reflective of the image they bear. And I, th- I think some examples that I've seen of this are like, it's the authentic nature. So I, I think through in, in our church, our small group ministry, missional community ministry, whatever you want to say, is we call them life groups. And in life groups, I have witnessed, and this is awesome, but I've, I've witnessed where there's been like live, you know, husband, wife, like having a disagreement and not like a sharp name calling pot and pan bashing disagreement, but more of a, you could tell that he felt one way and she felt another way. And I've seen those disagreements happen in the context of like, we're doing a life group dinner and it just gets a little awkward for a minute. And then we, we talk it through and we, and we converse all the way through it. And then sometimes I'll send a text afterward that says, Hey, I just wanted to check back in. How you doing after, uh, last night seemed like things were a little tense, but it also seemed like it kind of came back full circle. And usually what I find is other people in that community will offer even that night or later will offer encouragement or sharpening or help of some kind because they witnessed that because it wasn't hidden. And then all of a sudden, what used to be something that was in the dark is now in the light, and you're starting to see real transformation happen. I just, 
I think that's authentic. I think that's what the world needs. That's what the world wants is uh, not a cut and paste Sunday morning experience, but a lived in. I have, I have one friend who always calls it the shoe leather gospel, like something that's just like lived in, worn, used, um, helpful. So I guess I don't know if that answers the questions of what does a church look like, healthy church in times of suffering, but that's one suggestion. Yeah, I guess two things that I would say of what I'm I'm hearing you say is first is listening well. And I think it's been said, and we've both talked about this in our current moment, we need the ministry of the ear more than the ministry of the mouth. I think that's such a, a powerful statement. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not to say the mouth is um, 0% and never, right? Mm-hmm. We still need to speak truth and speak into people's lives. But especially with younger generations, I think that we are in a place where we need to learn how to listen mm. and learn how to listen well. And then secondly, I think what what you're saying is um, exactly true, just an authentic Jesus-centered faith that is not only internal but external. Mm. Yeah, for right? sure. That is lived out, that is characterized by Matthew 5, salt and light. And I think that is our great greatest witness, like you're saying, to the watching world to those who are not yet following Jesus to, to not be convinced by an argument, um, Mm -hmm. by a theological point or whatever. Some do Mm -hmm. come that way, but most are just compelled by the people of God living out what they believe. Yeah. I just think of how social media plays itself out, which is usually highly toxic, but just consider for a minute, if I have a viewpoint and I share it, on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or something like that. And I toss it out there for everybody to see. And it's a sharp one. Pick anything, but start with like COVID and you could have those opinions rampant. But think of how many people would read an argument and then in the comment section below would capitulate and humble themselves and be like, man, I never even thought about this perspective. Thanks so much for sharing. It's like, nobody does that. And I think we get so... We, we, we know nobody does it, but somehow we still think it works. And I guess I would just urge from a community standpoint, when we're diving into community and learning other people, there is um, advice, for example, always talks more than it listens. And I think listening is such a tool that God has given to us to help formulate good questions. Um, I think good eye contact while I'm talking to you and listening to what you're saying and then asking Spirit of God, like, Spirit, would you show me, would you help me to formulate a question, to frame something here that helps them to further give voice to what they're experiencing and not help me to have some great one-liner that's theologically sound? Like, I think when your heart is to love that person, God makes you theologically sound. It's, it's helpful. Yeah, that's good. Well, thanks, Doug. Uh, once again, thank you for another great episode. Do you have anything else that, that we missed or that you want to end with? The audio got messed up there just a little bit. But in response to Brady's question, I would just say this. Second Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And here it is. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You cannot be for others what you do not possess by experience and encounter with God by His Spirit.